Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Today, on this fourth Sabbath of Advent, we receive a gift, Bathsheba's gift. Love may be blind, but lust? Lust is all five senses firing wildly and haphazardly and irrationally at the same time. Beautiful Bathsheba caught the king's eye, and he could not shake that vision from his heart and mind. Lust led David to commit one of his most regrettable acts, an illicit relationship conceived in the darkness of sin and under the cover of the king's palace. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Where does this illicit dalliance lead? What will 23 and Jesus and me offer us? Does the incarnation of Jesus offer a way to move from illegitimacy to authenticity? What is it, Mommy? It looks like a crown, but it's tarnished. May I have that crown? Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. A tarnished crown is Bathsheba's gift. It is a story. A story from the Old Testament about a man who was said to be after God's own heart. And yet it's tarnished, because if you scratch beneath the surface of his life, of his family's life, in fact, if you scratch beneath the surface of any family's life, you will find that there are things that are not quite so godly. And that was the reality with King David. In fact, if you follow his story in Scripture, you discover that by the end of his life, he is a father and a grandfather over one messed up family. That's the reality of a tarnished crown. In fact, if we were speaking of David's family in the modern day, we would call them a dysfunctional family. I don't even care that much for that term because for me it's too global. It says that everything is bad. The truth is most of us have dysfunctions in our families and other parts that work just fine. But I've chosen to use it because I couldn't find a better term. Dysfunctional family. You know what dysfunctional families are like, don't you? It's like yesteryear's actor Cary Grant said. He said, insanity doesn't run in my family. It gallops. (laughs) 
But then there was someone who came along and took issue with what Grant and said, in my family, insanity doesn't run. It walks in leisurely fashion, stopping and chatting with each member and getting acquainted on an intimate basis. <laughs> and then there's a person who said, Christmas time is the time for a large family gathering of all the family members that are still speaking to each other. <laughs> Or what about the cartoon I saw of man on the phone? He's saying, is this the mental hospital? I'd like to reserve the family unit. <laughs> it wasn't just David. There are many others as well. In fact, this past week, I discovered a website entitled 21 Tweets About Weird Family Members. That'll make you laugh. Well, I'm only going to read four of them. But listen to these. First is a woman named Mara Nealon. My uncle teaches all my cousins how to drive in the cemetery because he says, at least there you can't kill anyone. <laughs> or what about this one, second one from Caitlin Baylor, who says, my grandpa turns all three TVs in his home to the same channel and then turns them up. He calls it surround sound. <laughs> and then one from Jonathan Tony. My grandma was completely silent on Space Mountain at Disney. When asked why, she said, because I didn't want my teeth to fly out. <laughs> <clears throat> and then there's this one. I pondered over this one. Somebody with the alias of Kermit. It's no wonder he had an alias. He tweeted out, my mom thought my weed was seasoning and used it for cooking. My entire family was high and had no idea why. <laughs> no wonder every one of those tweets were followed by hashtag, my family is weird. Can you relate? Or maybe you can relate to the couple. They're out driving. Their drive took them through a country lane. A little bit ago in the car, they had had a conversation which turned into a discussion, which turned into an argument, which now had ended up in a fight and a cold, hard silence in the car, neither speaking, neither wanting to give an inch to the other. As they drove down this country lane. They drove past a barnyard filled with mules and pigs. Through gritted teeth, the husband said, Your relatives? <laughs> to which the wife immediately shot back, Yep in-laws <laughs> I mean that's just the way it is with family not even to speak of dysfunctional family but that's the reality most of us if you, if you scratch beneath the surface you find things that aren't quite as good as we would like the world to know you find that there are challenges, that there are difficulties, that there are secrets, that there is shame. And then we come to Christmas. And then we come to church. And then we come, of all things, to the story behind the tarnished crown, Bathsheba's gift. And we have to ask, why in the world are we talking about this at Christmas of all times? The answer is really quite simple. The answer is we speak of it at Christmas because when Matthew the Evangelist sat down to scratch his gospel onto the pages of a manuscript, 
He told it. He spoke of it. When he began his gospel writing that genealogy of Jesus, writing of the ancestors of Jesus, he came to that story and he made a choice to include it. So I read it to you from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. It says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. It's that last line that catches me. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Three realities jump out to me and demand attention in that statement. The first reality is this. She is not named. She's not given a name. It's as though Matthew, as he's writing the account, says, Oh, that woman, arching his eyebrows. Many times families have that family member, Oh, mm, you roll your eyebrows, you arch your eyebrows. Don't even speak that person's name. She's not named. Now, in 17 verses, Matthew tells the genealogy, and in those 17 verses, he refers to 46 individuals, naming each and every one of them specifically. They all have names, except one. Well, you may say, Randy, that's not entirely true. After all, there are a couple of groups that are referred to. In verse 2, he refers to Judah and his brothers. Verse 11, Jeconiah and his brothers. So there are others that are referred to, to which I would respond, that's true. But the key person, the principal person, is named. And then Matthew just has a nod to recognize there were others in the family, other brothers that could have been named. But the 46, including Jesus, all are specifically named. Except for her. We know her name. We know it because we've read the Old Testament story. It's entirely possible that those who first encountered Matthew's genealogy also knew the name because they too knew the story. But if you were depending on the genealogy to come up with all of the names, you wouldn't have her name. We would just say, well, that woman. He doesn't say why. He just doesn't name her. Three realities jump out to me. That's the first one. The second reality that jumps out at me is that her husband is named. His name is given. You saw it right there. She had been the wife of Uriah. 
Now you say, well, that's not all that surprising. After all, in the world of that day and time, when they clicked on Ancestry.com or when they tried to do 23andMe, they always named the men, always named them. So that's not particularly surprising. And I would agree with you, that's true. Except for the fact that Uriah was a foreigner. Uriah the Hittite. He was part of the Hittite clan, the Hittite tribe, a, a tribe of warlike people with whom Israel at times had issues and at times they were friendly, but he was a foreigner. He was not to be in this royal lineage that was proving the pedigree of Jesus. His wife is not named. He is named. Again, no reason given. But I find it very interesting. Three realities jump out at me. She is not named. He is named. And then the third reality. It strikes me that an amazing story is told in two words. Two words you'd better not ignore because to ignore them is to miss the story. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Had been. Hmm. So what happened? Because that's a bit convoluted, because what you're telling me is Uriah was the husband, but David was the father. What do you mean, had been? Well, every family somewhere has shame, things of which we're not proud, had been. So what is the story? It's told back in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 11 tells the story. I want to read to you just the opening verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11 because with this opening verse, the storyteller lays out the background and sets the scene, provides the context for what is about to happen. So 2 Samuel 11 in verse 1 says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. David was a warrior. All you have to do is peruse his story in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel to realize that you are face to face with a man whose robes drip with blood, whose sword is always razor sharp, whose steed is ready to bear him into battle. At the front of the charge, he is the one who will lead his troops. It is from him that they take courage. David is a man of war. David remained in Jerusalem. It's as though the storyteller is saying, David isn't where he should be. And he's not sleeping that well. And so he takes walks on the flat roof of the palace. 
Watch from which he can look down onto the houses, the homes, and the streets below of his subjects. Watch from which he can look and observe what people doing. A walk which on one moonlit night revealed a woman bathing. And it is right there that begins the story that my friend and colleague at the School of Religion, Rick Rice, calls Bath, Bed, and Beyond. (laughs) Begins in David's heart. He sends for her. Now, the text doesn't tell us whether or not she's a willing participant. Some contest that she was a willing participant, suggesting that there are certain reasons to question that. They are valid reasons. After all, the role of women at the day wasn't her place to say no, especially not to a man like David, especially not to King David. King. The power imbalance was real and marked. Whether or not she was willing, there she was. The next morning, she is sent home. A few days, a couple weeks, three or four, five weeks, six weeks pass, and suddenly she sends a message to the king, a message that says, I'm late. And he says, to what? She says, not that kind of late. And he goes into full damage control mode. Damage control mode, the end of which is exceedingly more damage. Because by the end of his damage control mode, Uriah the Hittite lies dead on the battlefield, slain by the sword of Ammon, but slain at the command of the king of Israel. And then David, magnanimous man that he is, good king that he is to care for his people, brings the grieving, distraught widow into the palace to care for her. And the chapter ends. But it ends with a line, with one line, a line that could not have been better crafted than it was, couldn't have been better crafted by a 21st century mystery writer who's trying to pull you into the next chapter because right at the end of 2 Samuel 11, you read a line that goes like this, the thing that David did displeased the Lord. Shame. Sin. Secrecy. Well, with a line like that, we have to keep reading. When 2 Samuel 12 opens, it opens with the 60 Menace crew knocking on the palace door, having some questions for King David. Nathan leads them into into David's presence, but he leads them into the presence of David, not so much to ask questions as to tell him a story. He tells him a story, the which, by the end of it, David will leap to his feet and will seal his own conviction with his own words. Nathan says, David, wealthy man, all he could ever need, he had it. But instead, he reached over the fence and took what didn't belong to him. Belonged to a poor man, all he had, took it. And David jumps up and says, he deserves to die. 
And then Nathan spoke words that were as courageous as they were convicting. He said, you are the man. And it wasn't like, you're the man. <laughs> it wasn't that. <laughs> you are the man. I want to read to you from 2 Samuel chapter 12. David's response. Because for all of his bravado, for all of his battle-hardened conscience, underneath it all, there was a heart sensitive to the wooings and the conviction of the Spirit of God. 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. The forgiveness is as swift as the repentance. For all you may say about David, he, when confronted, confessed. You're not going to die, verse 14. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. That repentance, that forgiveness happen, happened awfully quickly. The storyteller in Samuel gives us just spare details. Doesn't elaborate. But if we turn over to the hymn book of Israel... If we turn over to the Psalms, we discover that David went through something profound. Psalm 51 has the superscript that says that this happened in response to Nathan coming to David after his affair with Bathsheba. And then the Psalm, that magnificent poetry of Israel, contains some of the most moving lines of Scripture, reflecting what was happening in the heart of David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me of my sin, for I know my sin and my transgression is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Wash me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. You don't want sacrifice or I would give it. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And one line after another, the psalm unfolds. Powerful, moving, repentance. It may have caused shame. It may have been secret. But when the veil was pulled aside and David realized, I am standing in the sight of a holy, living God. Our God, whom the writer to the Hebrews will later say, who is a consuming fire. David's heart was broken. And he repented. But the child still died. 
Somehow consequences sometimes cannot be avoided. But David responded when he heard the news. Back to 2 Samuel 12. This time, verse 20, when they told him the child was dead, it says, Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. Somehow things are being repaired between David and God. But God is not done yet. Notice these two verses. Verse 24, 2 Samuel 12. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah, which means beloved by the Lord. So now they have Solomon Jedidiah, or maybe it was Jedidiah Solomon. But whichever it was, they have the child to whom Matthew will later refer in his genealogy. This family, dysfunctional, with sin and secrets and shame, somehow caught up in the lineage, the ancestry of Christ. We live centuries, millennia later. Yes, we have families that are broken, families that struggle, families that have great difficulty. Families where there are secrets, where there is shame, families that are unhealthy, families that may deserve the name dysfunctional. In fact, every family has a member, or two, or ten, or twenty, who would fit in with David and his family. They've made choices that aren't the best choices. They have somehow soiled the family's reputation. Maybe they've chosen to go into a different career, or they've chosen a different religion, or they've chosen a different spouse. Or maybe they have that one moral stain that is now blotching the fabric of the family's character. It's repugnant. But every time that name is mentioned, people think not of the family, but of that person and that sin. And then we come to Christmas. We come to church. And we're all spit-shined and polished, looking good, as it should be, but maybe bearing sorrow, knowing shame. Do you know how we like to handle that? The way that we like to handle that is to cover it up. Cover it up. Don't let it be seen. Deny that it's there. It's like the mother who said to her children as they left for school in the morning, Now, kiddos, remember, everybody out there thinks we're a loving, good family. In other words, don't spoil it for us. Or maybe it's like the family. Prominent, well-to-do family wanted to give a special kind of gift to dad, to granddad, to the patriarch of the family. They wanted to give him a biography of the family. They were going to hire a biographer to write it. 
It would be kind of a 23andMe experience for him. But they had that one problem, that one uncle, Uncle George. Uncle George who had committed murder. Uncle George who paid for it in the electric chair in Georgia. They met with a biographer. How are you going to handle that? We don't want to blotch on our family's story. The biographer said, I'm a professional. I'll handle it. It will cause him no embarrassment and no shame. I've got it taken care of. So when the book came out, they couldn't wait to read it. Here's what the biographer had written. Uncle George occupied a chair of applied electronics (laughs) at an important government institution. He was attached to his position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a real shock. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, how can I hire that guy? Afterwards, you come up and say, can I get his email address? What's his website? Well, hey, don't come ask him. I don't know. I think it's an apocryphal story. I don't know who it is. But I know that that's what we would often like to do, to manage what goes on that causes pain and sorrow. So there it is, David story of his tarnished crown. And then we come to Christmas. We come to Christmas and we have to ask, how do we respond if this is our story? Well, you know what? I'll tell you how God responds. You know how God responds to that? He sends a baby to be born in Bethlehem. That's how God responds. God responds by sending a baby baby who will become the transitional figure in human history, who will become the transitional figure in David's family, who will not only accept the fact, this is my family, but will draw those people in and will do something that is transformative in their hearts and in their lives transforming what is dark from the past into what is light for the future, transforming what is shame in the past to what is joy in the future, God sends a baby. He says, in this baby, you will experience the kind of transformation for which you so deeply yearn and pray. It's as though God pushes aside that unattainable desire we have of the perfect family. It's as though he says there are no perfect families, not on this earth, but there is a perfect Redeemer for every family. In fact, it was in light of that very reality that the late Eugene Peterson wrote these words. He wrote, A search of Scripture turns up One rather surprising truth. There are no exemplary families. Not a single family is portrayed in Scripture in such a way so as to evoke admiration in us. There are many many family stories. There is considerable reference to family life. And there is sound counsel to guide the growth of families. But not a single model family for anyone to look up to in either awe or envy. 
Adam and Eve are no sooner out of the garden than their children get in a fight. Shem, Ham, and Japheth are forced to devise a strategy to hide their father's drunken shame. Jacob and Esau are bitter rivals and sow seeds of discord that bear centuries of bitter harvest. Joseph and his brothers bring changes on bring changes on the themes of sibling rivalry and parental bungling. Jesse's sons, brave and loyal in service of their country, are capricious and cruel to their youngest brother. David is unfortunate in both wives and children. He is a man after God's own heart and Israel's greatest king, but he cannot manage his own household. Even in the family of Jesus, where we might expect something different, there is exposition of the same theme. The picture in Mark chapter 3 strikes us as typical rather than exceptional. Jesus is active, healing the sick, comforting the distressed, and fulfilling his call as Messiah. While his mother and brothers are outside trying to get him to come home, quite sure that he's crazy. Jesus' family criticizes and does not appreciate. It misunderstands and does not comprehend. The biblical material consistently portrays family, not as a Norman Rockwell group, beaming in gratitude around a Thanksgiving turkey, but as a series of broken relationships in need of redemption. That's reality. And that's our God. Our God who didn't write an ancestry of perfect people and leave all of us utterly hopeless, saying, what are we supposed to do? Look at his family. Everybody's got it together. And then look at mine. God did no such thing. It's as though the spirit hovering over Matthew, the evangelist's shoulder, as he scratched out the genealogy, said to him, be truthful, be honest, include those on the outside, those who have blown it, those who have failed, because I want to send a message that says, every family is welcome here. The God we serve is a God of redemption. And so Matthew did. He wrote those words, traced those names, remembered those stories. And through that, he said, God redeemed that family. And since then, he's done it again and again and again and again and again. He did it in ancient Israel with David. He'll do it in modern-day Loma Linda with you. That's the message. That's Christmas. That's 23 and Jesus and me. That's the story of a God who will take a tarnished crown and transform it into a living legacy of his grace and love. And that, 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 my friends, is something about which all of us can sing. Hallelujah.